0: Together we turn today to, Rome, uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and then 44 to 46. We are continuing in our series here in the Gospel of Matthew, picking up in the parables of Jesus. There's a number of them here in this chapter. Matthew 13, hear now the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Children, do you remember way back this last spring when you were in school and in English class how your teacher would tell you you've got to kind of make a main point, a thesis, and you've got to tell people what you're going to say and then say it and then tell them what you just said and you've got to bring it up again and again. Well, this is one of the main points of Jesus that we see coming up over and over again, not just of Christ but of the entire Bible, and that is of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not in this world as a political kingdom. It's not like the United Kingdom. It is a rule, a power, an authority of God that breaks into the world, that spreads throughout the world, that we see in particular when Christ comes in his miracles, in his healings, in his death on the cross, in his binding of Satan, and in his resurrection. We see it as the Spirit brings forth the word of God into our hearts, the rule of righteousness and peace and love. And Jesus, like a, the wonderful Lord and perfect Savior that he is, is so patient with us, isn't he? Aren't you thankful that the Lord is more patient with you than you and I are with each other or with our kids or with our siblings? He's so patient with us. And in his wonderful condescension and grace and mercy, He speaks to us in his word in baby talk. Meaning, he condescends to us. He understands our weakness, our frailty. And he says, I'm going to teach you again about the kingdom. About how it grows and about how valuable it is. And he does so with these four parables today. First, let's look at the growth of the kingdom. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. Earlier, he talked about Isaiah. And how the parables he spoke were a fulfillment of that. That the same parable for those who don't see is a word of judgment. But for those who do by the spirit of God see Christ, it's a word of blessing. Now he goes not to Isaiah, but to Psalm 78, the psalm we just sang. A psalm of Asaph. Telling the history of Israel from the Exodus to the reign of King David. And he says these are parables in a sense isn't that interesting meaning they're teaching us the truth of god that is the same yesterday today and forever and jesus fulfills these words through the prophet of the psalm isn't that an interesting way to put it meaning psalm 78 shows the history of israel jesus is the perfect and true israel of god every type and shadow every promise and prophecy it's all pointing to jesus all the patterns of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. Their yes and amen in Jesus. So Psalm 78 is part of the law and prophets that prophesy. Not in a predictive sense, but in what's called typology. These things are hidden. But now Jesus is revealing them. What's that all about? The acts of God in redemption, in the teaching of Christ, in the healings of Christ, in the coming death and resurrection of Christ in Matthew. And the Old Testament looked forward to this. So these things are not new. But what is being revealed is that the Savior is both a king and a suffering servant. He is the Lord and he is the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus came to fulfill all the law and the prophets He reveals to us the Father. So you ask, well, what is God like? The answer is Jesus. It's not something that we in our own intellect can grasp, but something the Spirit of God gives us eyes to see, to behold the beauty of Jesus, to pick up the word of God and say, this is God feeding me, this is God speaking to me, to enjoy and know him who is delightfully good. That's what Jesus does by his spirit. That's what these parables are about. And he's reminding us in this first parable of a mustard seed that the kingdom of God, which is fulfilled in Jesus, has small beginnings. A mustard seed in that day is so tiny, kids. It's like a dot, like a piece of pepper. Do you ever have that at home? Just a tiny little thing If it gets in your eye, it's a problem. But one piece of pepper on your egg, you don't even taste it. A mustard seed. But it grows to be the biggest of all plants that are grown from a seed. Over 10 feet high. How could a seed like a piece of pepper grow that large? Well, as one man says, Jesus is giving us a verbal time-lapse photography. He's saying this is what God's kingdom is like. Look at the Old Testament. God speaks and the world is created. God establishes his rule in the Garden of Eden through one man, Adam. God begins his covenant of grace in one promise, that a Savior will come to crush the head of the serpent. What is an acorn there is growing. You see more of it in Psalm 78, and you see more of it now in Christ. The covenant promises of God. God made Abraham the father of the nation of Israel. God brings them through the wilderness wanderings. He makes them a kingdom that typifies the kingdom of Jesus to come through King David. And now the king is here. So the covenant of grace is the kingdom of grace in this sense. And the kingdom is like its king. Jesus wants you to understand this is very clear for those who have eyes to see. And yet, Many would say, well, what's this all about? What kind of king comes? How did he come, children? Not with fanfare, not with pop, not with circumstance, not with celebration in terms of all the nations of the world, but with the angels rejoicing, with shepherds in the fields, hearing the good news, glory to God in the highest. Today a Savior has been born unto you. He is Christ the Lord. He comes and he's born in a manger a feeding trough for animals. What kind of a strange kingdom is that? Well, it's like a mustard seed. He works in obscurity as a carpenter for about 30 years. He has disciples that will deny him and betray him. He does mighty works and miracles. He shows that he is the king. But as he gets closer to the cross the numbers of his disciples dwindle. Do you notice that in the New Testament? There's less and less. The feeding of the 5,000, even in the midst of that parable, it's Jesus' church shrinkage seminar, Godfrey says. People wanted a handout. They were there for fast food. Let's have it my way right away. And by the end, they're dispersing because they don't want to count the cost of discipleship. He dies on a Roman cross. Even his disciples scatter at that point. He's crucified in the place of sinners for love for his people. He dies, and yet it bears much fruit because on the third day he rose from the dead, physically, bodily, historically. And he didn't leave behind an army or a corporation, but 11 disciples to preach, to baptize, to make disciples of all nations. Who would design a story like this? Would you or I? We wouldn't. But God's ways are not our ways. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. A crucified Messiah, a cursed cross. Appearances can be deceiving. When it comes to God's kingdom, what you see visibly is not all you get. It grows steadily, extensively. Jesus says, the branches of the tree spread out, the birds of the air come and nest in the branches. This comes from Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. And as in Ezekiel 17, it's a picture of the peoples of the world, of the nations coming to rejoice in this glorious messiah king jesus it's a prophecy of the global reach of the gospel the nations come to christ from this one seed of the death and resurrection of christ this is encouraging brother and sister for us in the world we live in the rise and triumph of the modern self Cultural opposition to Christ, hatred of the Lord and his king. It's like Psalm 2. They are raging against God, but God is in the heavens. God is reigning from heaven above with wisdom, power, and strength. And we preach Christ into a world that overwhelmingly rejects him, but we do not despise the day of small things. And as we have eyes to see, the kingdom of God has broken in and is breaking in around the world throughout history. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the elect of God will find eternal homes in the church of Jesus. From a handful of followers in Matthew 13, to the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, to the gospel going to every city in the Roman Empire, to today, people say perhaps 2 billion people name the name of Christ Christianity today is growing in leaps and bounds in Africa, in Asia, in South America. Some say by 2050, there will be more than 1.2 billion Christians in Africa, more than the number in Europe and North America combined. By that time, they say one out of every eight people in the world will be an African Christian. The kingdom of God is global. The church of God is from everywhere to everywhere. Every skin color, every culture, every people, every socioeconomic category, every background, the family of God. We don't build the kingdom, but the kingdom breaks in more and more by the grace and spirit of God. Be encouraged today, Christian. This mustard seed is growing. The church has a mission to go and to make disciples of all nations, declaring the gospel by the power of the Spirit, disciples gathering into churches to worship and obey Jesus to the glory of the Father. This is happening. We read about what's happening in Turkey. Pastor Bocek is ministering the gospel there to Muslims and to many who have never heard the name of Christ. There are billions of people in nations all over the world who have never met a Christian. The gospel is going forth there. The word of God is being translated. The voice of the martyrs, Wycliffe Bible translators, many are doing work around the world to spread the glory of the gospel of Jesus. This is not first and foremost our effort. It is Christ's mission. Christ has compassion on the lost, and we have the joy to participate in it and to not stop praying. And to not be discouraged, but to remember there will be a countless multitude from every tribe and tongue worshiping at the throne of the Lamb in glory when the kingdom is consummated, when God is all in all. And may us be encouraged. The kingdom is spreading extensively. It is also at work in terms of transformation. Another parable, another wonderful grace of God this time talking about yeast and leaven. Kids, if you have leaven in flour, you don't see it. It becomes invisible. But overnight, what will happen to the dough? It'll grow. It permeates everything. Other places, leaven is very negative in the Bible, the leaven of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But here, it's speaking of supernatural growth by the Spirit of God, Three measures of flour, dough that ultimately is bread that will feed many people, perhaps 150 people that much flour. The point is the kingdom of God grows in the hearts of God's people. When we believe the gospel, Christ paid for all my sins, there's nothing to be added to his finished work. I rest in him, I find my delight in him and his love for me. I call on the name of the Lord. I'm reconciled to the Father. I'm one of his children. The Spirit has given me eyes to see the sweetness and the loveliness of Jesus. That's a work of this very kingdom that God has promised. When I behold what manner of love God has given to me, that I should be called a children of God, that's the work of God's grace in his kingdom. When I believe the promise that I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's his righteousness that is mine. I realize I will never love God unless I first know that he has loved me. I will never love him unless I know a security that comes in Christ so I can enjoy him. I'm united to Jesus by faith through the Spirit. The question then is not how righteous am I? But how righteous is Christ. That is how I know I will stand before the throne of God. Amid your ups and your downs. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that is his is yours. That is the work of God's spirit. The kingdom. When we forget this, we think we are what we do. Michael Reeves says, but when we remember our status in Christ, we are immune, much more, to pride and failure. In Christ, you are no failure. And in Christ, what do we have to be proud of but him? Eternal life begins now. The kingdom in the Spirit is an inheritance that's a down payment to you now. It will result in the fullness of the glory of God and the inheritance of Christ when he returns. But now you're growing, Christian, through the word and through the sacrament, the visible gospel, baptism in the Lord's Supper. God's people are being nurtured in the Lord. As we continue to pray, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. As the gospel is preached around the world, God's people are being fed. Jesus says, the Lord is building his church. Don't lose heart today, Christian. Don't despise the day of small things. To grow in grace, I need more and more to have the Spirit of God help me believe the gospel. To help me as obedient children, Peter says, to not be conformed to the passions of my former ignorance. To realize this is like farming. Not immediate. When you planted Your tomatoes or your strawberries or your raspberries in the spring, you didn't see fruit the next day. But now, kids, you probably see fruit and maybe more than you can even take in. The tomatoes are coming faster than you can eat them. And the raspberries. That's like the spirit of God producing fruit in us. Not overnight, but over time. God is patient with us Changing us to be more like Christ. Helping us to love Jesus more. It's a slow process, but God is at work in it. We are growing up in every way into the head who is Christ. That means we can expect, God, you will meet with us as we worship. You will be here among your people. As we think of God's steadfast love to us, our heart grows wiser. We grow in thankfulness. That's a fruit of the Spirit and the kingdom that is within our hearts. We grow in contentment. For the Christian, no matter how dark the night is, we can rejoice in Christ, even as health and prosperity might disappear. We grow in humility and joy at the same time. We are more aware of our weakness and sin than ever before, but we know that we are loved by God more than we ever realized And we are grounded in that love of God for us in Christ, whether we feel it or not. That's a picture of this leaven. We are in fellowship with each other. We do not and cannot live the Christian life alone. We give thanks to each other for each other's gifts and graces. The communion of the saints... We are here to encourage each other. The Christian life is contagious. When one person reads a word of the Lord in the scriptures, they share it with another. It strengthens them. The Spirit uses it to bless them. As we are here, we are encouraged in each other to strengthen each other in the, in the gospel. It means being merciful to those who doubt. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're doubting. Maybe you're feeling beat up. Maybe you're struggling. That's why we are here to encourage each other, to help each other trust in Jesus. Even when we're not holding on to Christ, He is holding to us. We encourage each other to press on, we encourage each other to serve. Every one of us has been given gifts to edify the body. When we don't serve, what happens? We become bitter, don't we? We start to complain. We start to get so judgmental. We begin to just focus on ourselves. Self-focus leads to self-hatred, and there's no glorifying God there. Others, being overly critical of others, leads us to just being so judgmental and think the worst of them and assume the motives are, are awful. We look to Christ together. We press on by faith together. We grow in trials and afflictions together. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. These are pictures of the yeast, a picture of the kingdom of God growing. And yet there's hindrances. Perhaps the biggest hindrance is this next parable: that when we admit it, we say, "I really value other things more than I value Christ." Second, the value of the kingdom. Jesus goes from parables dealing with seeds and harvest, yeast and bread, to now a parable dealing with real estate. We can perhaps get this more. You see a piece of property, you say, where is it? Location, location, location. If it's in a good location, you say, I will spend whatever I need to spend. In Jesus' day, there are no banks. There's no safe deposit box. If you have something valuable, what do you do? You bury it. And what happens? People sometimes forget where they buried it, or a war comes and they flee, and that thing stays buried. That happened, as Michael Kruger said, with one of the most valuable things historically that we've ever discovered. Do you know what that is? It was buried for over 2,000 or almost 2,000 years. Do you know what that was? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of the oldest copies of the Old Testament and other important writings were found in 1948 buried in caves. Kruger says they most likely were hidden there from people who were trying to escape invading armies. They hid them so well that they were there from 70 AD to 1948 and no one knew they were there. They were found as a shepherd was out looking for sheep. Isn't that interesting in the providence of God? This stuff still happens today, just in the news a while ago. A man found over 700 Civil War-era coins buried on his Kentucky farm. Some say it's worth maybe a million dollars, buried right in the backyard. Now, kids, don't go and start to dig up your yard. Here's a man who's probably a hired hand, working in the field. He doesn't own the field. He finds treasure. He sells all that he has to go buy the field, Another man is a wealthy merchant. His job was to look for good pearls. In that day and age, you would find pearls that perhaps were so large that today they would cost millions of dollars. Still today, the value of pearls. He's looking for something good, Kruger says, and he finds something great. He's mesmerized by it. He sees a pearl that he's never seen before. His face is glowing. He's never seen anything this beautiful. He sells all he has. He liquidates his assets. He invests all of it in the pearl. Both the treasure and the pearl are about Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is incalculably precious. The kingdom is not for sale. We don't buy it. In fact, Luke says, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus has completed it all. He has accomplished our salvation. But as we trust him by faith, we find in Christ everything. Life, joy, salvation, wisdom. You will not find wisdom that is anywhere else that is not found perfectly in Jesus They sell it all to get the treasure. What does that mean? We can't take hold of Christ by faith as long as we are clinging on to substitute idols. As long as we say, well, I will have Jesus here, but my real love is here. My good works, my treasures that I love more than Jesus. He's speaking here of repentance, isn't he? Which is not beat yourself up, go away and think you're miserable and God hates you. It is repentance unto life, a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred turn from the sin to God with a full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. It's a gift of God. It's a fruit of the gospel of grace. It is something that we, in our Christian life, continue all our life long. You never get to the point in this life, nor do I, when we don't repent. We cast ourselves on the mercy of God. He's saying here, don't miss this one word, joy. God does not want you to be miserable. God is generous and full of grace. He is ruling all things for your joy. He wants you to be happy in Christ. He wants you to rejoice today, Christian, with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Philippians 3. Paul's life gives us an example of this parable. Paul, who was a rising star in Judaism. Paul, who was the top of the top. Paul, who hated Christ and his people. Paul who says, all of that is horse manure. All of that is dung, Philippians 3, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Paul who was beaten and shipwrecked and stoned. Paul who eventually was killed under Nero. Paul says, I didn't miss out. That's how we are tempted in our hearts. I have a fear of missing out. Or I look back and I say, what if? Or I look forward and I say, I This is going to be better than Christ. I'll put Jesus to the side. I'll enjoy this. Then I'll come back to Christ. Paul says, no, you gain Christ. You have the joy of knowing him. His righteousness is yours. You know the power of his resurrection. You share in his sufferings. You are like him in his death. That by any means possible, Paul says, you may attain the resurrection from the dead. We give up what we once thought was so valuable to have by faith the one thing that is priceless. Christ himself. The loss of all things is not sad if you gain Christ. To buy the pearl, to obtain the field, they had to relinquish their other earthly treasures. He's saying you can't have both. Christ satisfies your heart, only him. And it's the expulsive power of a new affection, Chalmers says. It's the spirit giving you a new appetite, a new taste, a new affection, a new longing. Only Christ can satisfy. Your spouse is not Jesus. If you expect them to be Jesus, they will disappoint you. There are two dangers in a marriage. One, that it is recklessly bad. The other, that it is idolatrously good. (laughs) Meaning, only Christ, your spouse, as a husband can love you, wives, as Christ loved the church. He's pointing you to Jesus. You can love and respect one another and point each other to Christ. Only Christ. We will spend eternity discovering the true dimensions of the infinite worth of Jesus to the unending satisfaction of our hearts. It will never end. Jim Elliot, kids, was not much older than some of you. He was at Wheaton College shortly thereafter. 1956. He brought the gospel to the Guarani peoples of South America. That was his calling. That might not be your calling. Serve God wherever you're called. He's the man who brought them the gospel, who was killed, and who said before that, as the first. Husband of Elizabeth Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He believed it. We struggle. Lord, help my unbelief. I struggle to believe that, right? If you're honest. God gave him grace and endurance. That gospel was brought to the Warani peoples. And some of them who were a part of the murder ended up confessing Christ as their savior. Some of them we trust are perhaps very much this day with Jim Elliot in glory, beholding in Jesus treasures and inestimable glory that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. The riches of Jesus, knowing that he loves you, knowing his glory and grace, that he who was rich for your sake became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich, The gospel says, Ferguson, not that you're to be miserable in this life, but that all we anticipate in the future, we begin to experience now in the present. By faith, a taste of it, so that heaven is in this man or this woman before this man or this woman is in heaven. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places now. Do you enjoy him? We say, well, not... As much as I want. God help me. Where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Is Christ your treasure? Do you love him? Or as Kruger says. Do you adore him? Do you look upon him as beautiful and dazzling? Kruger brings us into marriage. The question in our marriage is not okay, you've been married 10, 12, 30, 50 years. Just keep your obligations. It's more than that, isn't it? You know that. The question is, do you and your spouse adore each other? That's the question. When you look at your spouse, not like a teenager, who's, that's, they're in lust, they're not in love. But when you look at your spouse, is there something deep there and rich there? I adore you. Not that I worship you, but that God has given me this grace to love you. Has God given you the grace to adore Jesus? The grace to repent that I have not adored my spouse and I have not adored Jesus as I ought. Here's how Kruger says we can be helped in this. Have you thought of Jesus' gentleness? Children, Are drawn to him. That says a lot about his heart. What is Christ's heart for you? He is moved with compassion for you. He knows your temptations, your weaknesses. He comes near to you by his spirit. Have you reflected on his wisdom as you have read Matthew? Have you reflected on how he helped that person lowered through the roof? He healed that woman who was dealing with years of bleeding. He took her hand. He touched her. He cleansed unclean people. And the same Jesus who is in heaven does that for us now by his Spirit. Our pleas for mercy are half-hearted. But his invincible cleansing, his abundant mercy, his steadfast love is not far away from you. Through his Spirit, he lives in you. He gives you grace to know him, to enjoy him forever. That's what we're saved for. To love Him, to not just think about salvation or a kind of a bank transfer in a rigid way, but to delight in the Lord who is my salvation, the Lord who is my righteousness, the Lord who is my wisdom, the Lord who is gracious. The focus is Christ. He is the treasure, He is the pearl. You're made to find rest in him. You're made to be satisfied in him. You're made to enjoy him for his own sake. He is sweeter than all pleasure. Here's one thing that ties these parables together. If we love Christ as our highest treasure, and if we love people as he did, ready to lay down our lives for our enemies, Then we will labor to spread a passion for Christ to as many people as we can. To see the gospel go forth. Evangelism and missions. We will pray for spiritual awakening. We will not be content just to feed ourselves, but it will be outflowing. Here's Reeves again. There's a kind of mission that can be carried out by miserable Christians. Christians who don't enjoy God won't commend him to others. If we fear that God's love for us is reluctant, if we think his approval for me rests on my performance, I will have no affection for him. My service will be grudging and the world will see right through it. Beloved, by the grace of God, share your joy in Christ. Don't hoard it. A hoarded joy rots like a bog in summer where there's no spring flowing through. Shared joy increases. That's our mission as a church. This parable of the treasure and the pearl reminds us as well the kingdom of God doesn't come to everyone in the same way. Some rich, some poor every skin color, every people, every nation. You have a place here if you believe in Jesus. There are no cliques here. There are no in-groups or out-groups, insiders or outsiders. You have a home here today among the family of God, regardless of your background, regardless of your schooling, regardless of your economic status, regardless of the language you speak. If you are a believer in Christ, you are among the people of God who are part of the kingdom of God by the grace of God. And we will, by the grace and mercy that God gives, ask the Lord to bind us as the family of God together in unity for love for the Lord and for each other. May God grant that among us. Amen. Let's respond and sing. Glorious things of thee are spoken.